Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Welcome to From Scratch. I'm Michael Ruhlman. This is the last show in our Restaurants During Quarantine series, and it covers a lot of ground with two of the most forward-thinking figures in the industry, Dan Barber, chef and leader of Blue Hill at Stone Barns, and Nick Kokonis, a co-owner of the Alinea Group Restaurants and creator of the Reservations Ordering System, Talk. Both are in the upper echelons of the fine dining world, and both have remarkably different views from this similar vantage. The conversations crossed many subjects, from our farming and our food supply to out-of-work cooks to how a white chef can begin to address issues of white privilege. We also talk about how a chef becomes that once most woeful of creatures, a food processor, and ways we can help the farmers who once supplied the restaurants. And Nick Kokonis describes Alinea's strategy when the pandemic struck and how a Michelin three-star restaurant serving 128 people a night became a carryout restaurant serving 1,000 people a night. How is his restaurant group moving forward at a time when we can only see four weeks ahead? And what opportunities do we have to fix problems? What changes will be permanent? And how do we change the industry for the better when we are safely on the other side of the pandemic? First, I caught up with Dan Barber out at Stone Barns, where he and his staff are putting together boxes of meat, produce, dairy, and pastries. Dan is a man who is always thinking, and I was enthralled by how he could move from despair to revelation to inspiration in the span of a 20-minute conversation. He spoke to me from an office at the edge of his kitchen in Pocantico Hills, where one can hear both lovely birdsong intermixed with sounds of clanging pots and pans. Dan, I asked... How are you? Terrible. Terrible. Tell me why. Terrible. Well, I mean, who isn't uh, terrible at this moment? It's really uh, a harrowing time in so many ways. But, I mean, the COVID, it wiped out the business. So I'm, I'm still mourning that a little bit. You know, I, we, we fired 200 employees, and it was like the great diaspora. They all fled all over the world back home because I, I knew that we attracted people from all over the world. But, man, I really know it now. Uh, and I'm not going to no. get those people back. You know, it took 20 years to build that 
the quality of people we had in the kitchen and in the front house, but really the kitchen is what I'm sort of mourning. And so I'm still thinking about them a lot. And then of course, and this just last last week with all the upheaval and protest and just, you know, you really feel sad for our, for our country. And, you know, for me, I feel this connection to food justice in a way that I hadn't before. And so I'm still struggling with that. I haven't worked out what it is, but I'm... Where I'm, are you? Where are you with that thought? I mean, if you'd asked me that 72 hours ago, I would have had, a, I think, a pretty stock answer from a privileged white male who knows that he's privileged and white, knows he's white for sure and knows he's privileged. But I had a kind of deeper thing. I'll just tell you this. It's just to get a little bit raw, but I'll just tell you. So here's what happened. Three of the chefs were restless and decided to plant a garden. That was all. They took a shovel to the lawn and broke the sod and planted their dream vegetable garden. And the farmer, Jack Algier, who's an amazing farmer, started you know, helping them along with the building this garden and wrote a recipe for them to follow. So it's, it all of a sudden spoke their language. They got really excited, took pictures. They started Instagramming and slacking and all the things these, like, these millennials do these days. And all of a sudden, I realized there was like 30 or so out-of-work cooks following us all around the country, like doing the recipe of, of breaking sod in a lawn. And, and it was just so funny like to see the image of these cooks and how happy they were and like what they were describing, the little videos. I was just like, this is, this is incredible. And like, what if we formalized it? Dan posted it on his Instagram feed, which is followed by nearly 400,000 people, making the kitchen farming project official and calling on chefs around the world to plant gardens. This morning I woke up and there are 2,930 out-of-work cooks planting these kitchen gardens around the world. We have Greece, Nigeria, Uganda, New Zealand, Alaska. I mean, you see these images of these cooks, like, it's incredible. I was so excited about the interest, but I wasn't seeing anything in, like, urban environments. And I was like, what about all these cooks in New York? So I wrote this woman named Barry Price, who started something called The Battery. So it's a non-for-profit, non-for-profit public park within a public park, but it's beautified and, and secured through private donations. Nations. It was really brilliant. And I wrote her, you know, and I was like, Barry, if, if in the middle of the night a couple of cooks came and broke sod and created a kitchen garden, you know, in, in the dark of night, like the next day, would you like arrest them? Would you like, would it be okay? Are you going to get all, you know, all this stuff? So she writes me back the next day. She's like, not only are we not going to arrest you, we want to turn over a half an acre to you. Three days later, it was up and running. Out-of-work cooks from several top New York City restaurants were down at the tip of Manhattan, planting gardens in a public park. And it was amazing. It was an amazing moment, which is I posted the image of these cooks preparing the garden for, for this, for planting. And I just, I told the story. And, and that night, the Instagram sort of exploded and the comments back, were, a lot were positive, but a ton were just like, Another example of white privilege. Here's a, you know, a chef saying he wants public land, he waves his wand, and boom, there it is. Now, I would say 75% of comments mentioned a woman uh, by the name of Amber Tramp. And they said, why, are, why aren't you collaborating with a woman who's had this idea for parks, for turning over parks to urban agriculture? Why haven't you consulted with her? Why are you stealing her idea? I didn't even know who Amber Tramp was. So Dan found Amber Tam, and he called her. It resulted in a huge revelation for him. When I got on the phone with her, I was making a list of all the things that were wrong about all these posts. But I wanted to do it very nicely, and I wanted to convince Amber that this is a great project. It's cooks getting into the soil. We're going we're gonna to donate the harvest to underprivileged communities and soup kitchens. And like I was like, everything about this is good. And I started telling her the story. And then I got to the part where I said, and I called Lori Price from Battery. And I said, you know, I'm no worry because of Blue Hill. And she used to eat there. And I said, you know, war, I got this great idea. And I stopped. And it was something about the way she started to say something or she cleared her throat. I don't actually remember. But I stopped. And I don't know what came over me, but I, I got so flushed. I, my, I felt like my blood running to my thing. And I said, Amber, I I, this is five minutes, into, uh, ten minutes in the phone call. I said, Amber. What I am just telling you now is white privilege, isn't it? And she was like, yeah. And 
basically what I went on to learn from her in a conversation that lasts about an hour and a half was like, first of all, the fact that we got into the garden was white privilege because this woman who could afford to eat at an expensive restaurant and frequent it is the way I got to be friends with her. And she basically, though she wasn't doing me a favor, it sort of was a a a privilege of, I am privileged to have had that connection. And I never thought of it that way. I never thought of how deep that actually goes. Something as supposedly innocent as knowing somebody is actually privilege. And what she went on to tell me, which which is 100% right, is that I didn't stop in this moment of privilege to say, how can I partner with people who, are, who have not been heard on this issue? How can I take people who are advocates for urban agriculture, urban gardening, that have been doing it their whole life, and bring them along with me? Be a voice for them. I have a bully pulpit, a weird bully pulpit from being a chef, and I could have used it in that moment in a way that would have been uh, life-changing, game-changing for a bunch of people in the city that devoted their lives to it. But I've had a, a moment of like real um, consciousness about privilege in a way that, again, I was conscious of, but nowhere near what I feel I screwed up with in this uh, potential experience, this, 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 the potential of this, and that I think will change my life as I move forward. Since we spoke, Dan Barber and Amber Tam have partnered on the Kitchen Farming Project, or what they're now calling KFP Community Gardens. He posted a black and white shot of the garden in the Battery Park Conservancy on June 11th, writing, Tomorrow, I am going to hand over this platform and the attention I receive here to Amber Tam herself, so she can tell you about the work she does and has done, plus the work we're planning to do together for now and for what I hope will be a long time. I'm grateful to everyone here who helped bring Amber and her work to my attention. Listeners, I urge you to take a moment to follow Amber on Instagram to learn about her, her work, and stay connected as this project moves forward. On Instagram, at Amber Tam, A-M-B-E-R-T-A-M-M. Of course, Dan is busy with several things at once, especially now, trying to support the farmers he relies on, maintain his business, and keep as many people as possible employed. Dan and his team created another project called Resourced, which channels products from their farmers and partners to customers. Every day, you can pick up a box of extraordinary food from a half dozen locations in the New York area. I wanted to know how Resourced was going and how are the farmers he works with? It turned out he got in touch with 500 of them. How is Resourced going? In general, it's going great. We launched Resourced with the feeling that small independent farmers were in trouble, except the headlines from the Times, from the Wall Street Journal, from the NPR, everyone that matters, the headlines were that small independent farming was booming for a lot of reasons. One being a lot of people are moving out of the city and buying directly from farms, and so the spike in sales in March and April were huge. But that wasn't the story, and the question that we asked, we put together a survey for 500 farms around the country is what we ended up getting responses from. It's a very long survey. I spent three weeks putting it together with a group of -of out-of-work cooks and educators, and the survey's really great, and what it asked was a little bit about the now in terms of what your sales are now, but much more. What happens come August or September if restaurants are down 50%, which I think is a conservative estimate in terms of sales to these farms, and what if farmers markets are down 50% because of social distancing? What does it look like for you then? And what we got back from 448 farms was that between 30 and 40% would be bankrupt by the end of 2020. Now, that's a catastrophic number in and of itself. A third of farms around the country, the kind of small, independent, largely organic, mixed variety farms uh, will go under. That's like what happened in the 30s. I mean, this is like, that's serious issue. and. It's like a tsunami that's about to come ashore. And that's what these farmers are saying. It's also probably worse than that because we had to poll. I did the poll with a lot of people that are experts at doing you know, this kind of work. And to be fair, we had to, we had to do a big swath of farmers. And so uh, you know, we did grain farms that are not affected right now by COVID. So the number's actually probably more depressed than it is. But even at a third, it's, it spells peril. And what I, the reason, this is really launching resource into its second iteration, but it's actually a journalism story as much as it is a farming story. There's a bunch of -of out-of-work cooks 
who put together a survey that cracked a story that every other major news media outlet could not, did not get. So now we're, we are focusing resourced on, we created a box program, which is, which is helping some farms that are in real trouble and creating boxes to buy the, that, that, those meats, those proteins and produce. But now we're talking about well, what do we do next? Well, how do we, what do we learn from this survey where, where it's actionable? What can we do? One thing is that that we've learned is that the the harvest moment from you know like July, but mainly August and September is really in trouble for a lot of these small independent farmers. For migrant labor is in trouble. You know, they, they just the labor issue is a big one. And so we're thinking about a harvest core idea that you know maybe we can put together for this region, being the Hudson Valley, or maybe it's nationally. And so we're proposing something that's legislative in terms of helping these farmers, and maybe in terms of Harvest Corps. So if we've got a lot of out-of-work people, and we've got a lot of out-of-work cooks, that's for sure, young, driven, we've got a lot of farms that need labor, can we can we put that together in a kind of legislation that makes sense, and can we do it quickly? It's all really exciting, Dan, and you know, you sounded so fatalistic when we got on the phone, but these are potentially good outcomes from this tragic, perilous time. Yes, I, I think good that if you think about this a long game, how do we circle out of this pandemic moment where we we come out with a stronger food system? Maybe it's a little bit too early to ask that, but maybe not. One thing I take away from the COVID time is that this, in many ways, you could argue that this is a, a food crisis as much as it's a, a, a virus. I mean, if you look at the statistics that talk about underlying conditions and the, the connection with underlying conditions and, and COVID, it's unbelievable. They are diabetes, they are obesity, and they are in some ways heart-related that all relate to dietary disease. And the, and the underlying condition is diet-related, then diet-related can be fixed. And we have a food system that is bonkers and is feeding into this. The irony, and it's not a nice one, is that the very farms that we want to, to help circle out of this are the ones that I mentioned, the 30 to 40% that are about to go under uh, with the kind of nutrient density and diversity that we want for our bodies and for our environment. I mean, that kind of diversity is what you want for these farms moving forward. So I, it's, a, it's a tragic moment, although I think raising consciousness about this is a very important first step. And now we're, we're scrambling to see about programs that can be actionable. So that would mean first getting the cooks out to harvest and then you'd have to have distribution. That's probably the, you, you nailed the biggest uh, stumbling block. I mean, when, now you know why Amazon's Amazon. I mean, the distribution costs of all this that we've been looking into, it's just, that's what's killing these farmers. I mean, if, if the 30, 40% go out of business, you, the number one reason is the transaction cost. How far in the future are you looking besides in, in just general with your restaurant? Like week to week, are you doing any takeout, carry away? Well, the resource program is a box program. At I mean, that's most of where my the, the time is. I'm sorry for the noise, but the, the, we're in a kitchen here. You know, we become a we become a food processing center. We're boxes now. We just we have not ten boxes that we're producing from pork box to beef box to vegetable box to some prepared food boxes, and we have a fish box with dayboat fishermen. All of these farmers have very little nimbleness of outlets. So we we are selling these boxes. We're trying to make a go of it. It's not not breaking even, but we're trying. And then in terms of the restaurant. We're waiting for some clarity on what the rule is going to be because um, at what I've heard is 50% capacity. I don't know how that how that works. It doesn't work. I don't know. It doesn't pay the rent. No, no. So I'm lucky at Stonebarns where I'm standing. We have a lot of outdoor space, so we probably will utilize that. But, you know, I'm not – I'm actually, to be honest with you, I haven't thought that much about the customers. I thought a lot about the cooks. How do you create an environment that's safe in a kitchen – when you're doing a la menu cooking. We're all meeting at the pass to plate, you know, the whatever we're right. doing and we're all just in each other's face in a hot, sweaty environment. It's like I don't I don't get it. So what I'm thinking now, although this could change, is that, you know, we will do food service that is pre-prepared sort of like our box program but we're going to make it as interesting as we can and there's not going to be odd food and in that case we can you know have an environment you know where here look i just this is this is my kitchen right now at full capacity barbara walked us through his kitchen which normally has 40 chefs but today he only had about five doing serious garde manger work that is preparing and preserving the true keepers of the food here right now, this is from Montauk Dayboat day Monkfish. 
We got, I think it's 500 pounds from a landing. But how many pounds am I going to serve in boxes this week? Maybe 100. So we're like figuring out how to process the monkfish so that it, we smoke it and dry it and we're going to figure out where to serve it as we move on. We're really like a lineup factory production. So we've got, you know, a forager came by with, with tons of rhubarb. We bought that and now we're fermenting it and pickling it and working on all that for the day. And then I don't even know. What are you guys doing? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we have the dairy from Blue Hill Farm, which is just out of this world right now, uh, but no restaurant. So we're making lots of butters. That's called a brown butter butter. So we're browning the butter and then making a butter out of the brown butter. You know, things like <laughs> nice. that. That's my kitchen right now. But another hour, you're going to see uh, two pigs laid out right there. And we're going to be processing two pigs. And then tonight, the crew will be doing uh, fermenting and pickling work. Uh, a lot of drying, pickling, fermenting, so we can take mm-hmm. a lot of this tonnage. So, But it's a processing. I mean, that's the thing. It's like I'm no longer a chef. I'm a, I'm a food processor. And, you know, it's actually kind of humbling because I'm not really inventing anything here. You know, everything I've mentioned is what cultures and civilizations figured out for thousands of years. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I'm just borrowing. Right. I mean, we always, I've always done these techniques a little bit, in the, a lot in the restaurant, but it's, but not like this. And to me, if there's a lesson gastronomically to learn out of this COVID, it's that that's what's missing is, is food processing because it, I shouldn't be doing what I just took you through. We should be having hubs all around the Hudson Valley that are doing this. That's right. what's missing. We, and, and that's the problem with farm to table. You know, if we've been talking 10 weeks ago, I would have said, Michael, the strongest food chain, and you would have agreed with me, the strongest food chain out there is farm to table because it's the smallest chain. It's, you know, it's just direct. And, you know, that's the most resilient. Well, look at what happened. I mean, COVID comes and overnight, 30 to 40% of the farms are going to be out of business. That's not a strong food chain. And it's not really a food chain because it's not a food system. It's, it's, it's a direct transaction. That's not resilient. So, you know, I, to me, coming out of this, and more and more I think about it, it's about food processing. And, and it's about changing the culture of food processing. Because if you called me a food processor, you know, I'd be like, F you, dude. Like, at least, you know, a year ago, I would have, or 10, 10 weeks ago, I would have. But because food processing is such a, such a like, a, an insult in America, it's such an insult. Because all we do when we process food is we denude it, we, we make it not delicious and we probably buy it from sources that are destroying the environment but what if we thought about food processing in the way that almost every good you know great cuisine has thought about it or culture has thought about it over over thousands of years which is not only to make the food more delicious fermentation for example charcuterie for example but also make it more nutritious because the stuff's bioavailable to you and it actually makes you healthier. And what if we could be doing it in a way that allows a revenue stream for a farm to be sustainable? It sort of all points to that. And yet, you know, I mean, look at our, look at our concentrated, you know, uh, meat processing in this country and how it just all of a sudden is so vulnerable. So there's a new way to look at this that I would like to be a part of. From despair to optimism to looking for opportunities in this time of pandemic. Well, that's what a chef does. Adapt, persevere, overcome. When we come back, Nick Kokonis talks about how the reservation system he created gave him an early warning sign of the pandemic. What he and his team did and how the pandemic may lead to lasting change in the industry. Ready? Okay. Give me a beat. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. 
Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. My next guest is Nick Kokonis. Nick Kokonis. I am the co-owner of the Alinea Group and the founder and CEO of Talk. The Alinea Group comprises the restaurants Alinea, Royster, Next, the modernist bar called Aviary, and the design company Crucial Detail. What are we talking about, Michael? <laughs> Nick joined me remotely to discuss the shifts at Alinea and Talk in recent months. How did a Michelin three-star restaurant like Alinea change to takeout? And could their takeout operations become a permanent fixture in their business? But first, I asked Nick how he and his team were able to see this crisis coming before most of their peers in the restaurant industry. Nick's software company, Talk, does many things, including restaurant reservations for clients all over the globe. In late February, I could see the reservations in Hong Kong where we have clients on Talk. I could see their bookings go from you know 96% occupancy to zero in two or three days. And as we saw cases of COVID happening on the West Coast, we're going to need to start thinking about changing things because our reservations are starting to fall off a cliff here. So we could see through the data and through the reservations as it went west to east coast that this was going to happen. And, and you know, I'm a former derivatives trader and, and I like looking at sort of large numbers. And what you often see is that before people talk about things, behavior changes. And so we could see that reservations in Seattle were down 20 to 30 to 40 percent at some places mostly from out-of-town people who stopped traveling. So I was like, this could happen to us. And here's the thing. If a bad weather front hits, you know, New Orleans or Miami that isn't catastrophic, they know what to do. Like, it's a normal hurricane and you're going to be shut for a couple of days and, and we board things up and we unboard them and we're back to business. But then you have something like Katrina hits and it wipes out the whole city. And this looked like it had the potential to be something like that. And while a lot of people on TV were saying, well, that could never happen here, I was like, why not? We're, we're humans. We get sick, too. So March 8th was the point at which I kind of woke up and went, we need to really plan for how to save our businesses and how to help the industry as a whole. Was there something that specifically that happened on March 8th that, that triggered it? No, it was it was accumulation of just seeing in aggregate what was happening and the fact that there was nothing being done to really stop it. Also, whenever I see people on TV that clearly look like they know something but are lying, <laughs> I have a good, I have a good, I have a good feel for that after being a trader for a long time. And I was looking at our officials and Congress people and whatnot going, I think the reports they're getting do not match with their tone on TV. They are lying through their teeth. Now, of course, there's lying every day on TV these days, but there's lying and then there's lying that can affect my own business personally. 
And so my thing was like, I hope this doesn't happen, but damn it, we need to plan for it. And nobody in my company seems to be doing so. You know, I got very adamant and very militant about it quickly. What'd you do? Well, first I called in our general counsel and said, I need to understand the nuances of labor law because I want to know how to best support and handle our staff. And then I talked to our business development people and said, what do we got? What's in the bank? How much money can we give to our staff if we have to furlough them? What are our cash positions? What are our reserves? Look through our leases. Like, I mean, this was before we were shelter in place. This was before people were saying it's going to decimate the industry. And then I just said, like, what do we do if X happens? What do we do if Y happens? What do we do if Z happens? You know, if it doesn't come to Chicago, but no one can fly to Chicago, that's a disruption, but not catastrophic. But at the same time, for a restaurant like Alinea in the summer, that's 50% of our business. 50% of our business is people from out of town who flew to Chicago to dine at our restaurant. And then went to the museums and, and the sports events and all that. So that's bad, but not existential. If we're forced to shut, that's existential. And, uh, you know, within a week, obviously, that, that's what happened. How, how quickly did you move to carry out? Uh, three days after shelter in place, we did 500 short rib beef wellingtons. Which, by the way, like, that's bananas. <laughs> like, you know, it's shifting... Alinea operations, putting into place all the safety protocols, hourly hand washing, temperature check monitoring, all logged PPE, you know, masks, gloves for all staff, front and back of house, all of that. Logistically, was it a difficult move? I mean, suddenly you've got a, you've got all this packaging you've got to deal with, and you're you're doing a different kind of style of food and different method of delivery of food and a different supply chain. Yeah, and so you had to make compromises, obviously. But Alinea has been popped up in Spain and we've done all these crazy different events around the world and whatnot. Grant and team did a dinner at the Swedish embassy where they wouldn't let them cook in the actual kitchens, only in the library. And then they blew out all the circuits in the place and the fire alarms went off and yet they still serve the food. You know, this was obviously that on steroids. But at the end of the day, like Alinea serves 128 people on a normal night every night. The door never locks. The nighttime cleaning people come in. The average person's getting 15 courses. You do the math on that, and you're looking at over 2,000 very intricate, detailed dishes going out of the dining room along with wine pairings and all that. It is a ballet and a chorus and all of those things. Doing 500 to-go packages means everyone's home by 7 o'clock binging Netflix and drinking a glass of wine. It is way easier doing carry-out than it is doing Michelin-starred fine dining. What's that do to food costs, prices, profit? Well, we immediately took the price down to thirty-four ninety-five a person. So my contention has always been every restaurant's the same from a business standpoint. You either do 300 people at $100 or 100 people at $300. Or cut that in half and do 600 people at $50. It's the same economics, same number of people, same rent, same economics. So now we have to do a thousand people at 50 bucks a person. And that's $50,000 in revenue, which is a lot, but our overhead's a lot. We have a restaurant of 74 seats and we have about a hundred staff there. So how do you support a hundred staff? You scale your volume, not your pricing. So I was a bit like that, you know, the guy in the character in Apocalypse Now, like flying in with the flight of the Valkyries. Like I was just like, we are go time. Like I need some beef Wellingtons now. Sorry. Am I allowed to swear on this show? I don't know. But here's the thing. Like you know Grant well enough to know that he just kind of looked at me and was like, okay, you seem really certain. We've been trusting each other for a long time. I'm in. Okay, you tell me what you need me to do, which I never do for his kitchen. His kitchen is his kitchen. You were selling 1,250 meals a day. Still are. And then we built talk to be able to do paste carryout. So we have a, a notion of kitchen inventory per time slot. So, the, you know, you know how kitchens work. You have an expediter, you have 15 minute windows of people being seated and whatnot. But if you're on DoorDash or Caviar or you know, Grubhub or whatever, it's just burgers out the back door. So they, they're just like, yeah, whoever wants to order can order. There's no notion of time or expediting or any of that. And, and in this new world of like elevated carryout, which I think is here to stay long past the crisis, we need to pace our kitchen because otherwise there's no way in the world we're going to be able to carry out, you know, imagine if 450 cars all showed up at once. That wouldn't work. 
So we built all that out in six days with 20 engineers and then kept improving it over the last two months. I mean, we're doing every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're doing updates to the system to the point where we have two-way text integration. We have questionnaires for COVID and contact tracing. But early on, we just did the basics and did them well. And respectfully, it's just not that hard. The restaurant business is hard all the time, but so is every other business. <laughs> you know, it's like I hear on TV a lot, like, this is the hardest business. It's like, well, actually, no. Every business, it's hard being a writer and keep writing and showing up every day. And I think you told me one time, writers write. Like, you set a time a day every day for a couple hours and you write. Whether you're working on a book or not working on a book, you write every day. We are in the business of feeding people. We need to feed people every day. And so whether or not we have a plan or don't have a plan, whether it's easy or hard, whether the government says we should or not, we are going to figure out a way to try to feed people and feed people charitably as well. Uh, you know, feed the first responders, do all that as well. But you also have to feed your own people. You have to feed your staff. You have to keep your business going. When did you move to multi, uh, multi-course multi meal? Our 15th anniversary was on May 4th. We had planned a celebration. That was the night that the Beard Awards were supposed to be here. And that's the point at which I knew that we had a willing audience that was willing to bring food home and, and do cool things with it and reheat it and keep the sauce separate and all that. So Grant just said, hey, for the 15th, I want to do a six-course meal with bumps for all of our regulars and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, yeah, great. Like, knock your socks off. Now, what they actually did was so much beyond what I thought. And we ended up doing, you know, the table dessert with, you know, a piece of acetate and inside the acetate are all the little cups of all the different sauces. And there's like a little, you know, cake and all that. We've served 33,000 of those six course meals. That's incredible. How, how many, how many again? 33,000? 33,000. Mm-hmm. If you think about that, well, first of all, almost everybody was from Chicago. We did have some college kids drive all the way from New York City, pick it up and drive all the way back. We had some people from Indiana and Ohio and Wisconsin. But obviously, the vast majority, 99.9%, are from the Chicago area. So when you think about the population of Chicago, we hit about 1% of the population of metropolitan Chicago in the last 60 days. And there, it would have taken us 20 years to do that sort of thing. And for many people, for most, I'd say it is their first experience with any kind of dining like this, even though, of course, it's not really Michelin three-star food and there is no service and all that. It is their first connection with our restaurant, and we take that very seriously. What does the future look like for restaurants? You certainly can't know. What I do know is that 2019 came after 1919. So everyone who says that everything's changed permanently forgets the Roaring Twenties. We are several months into something that could be a several-year process. But even the most pessimistic of experts are like, yeah, by 2021, either through science or through horror, like the horrors of people dying and herd immunity and all that, it won't be a permanent state of affairs. So does anyone want to go through this for 18 to 24 months? Of course not. But we are a society that has not been challenged like this in our lifetimes. But our parents were, our grandparents were. And my attitude is, at this point, I'm like, okay, I need positive cash flow next month. I don't know what's going to happen in eight weeks, but I can do something about the next eight weeks. I can try to run as efficiently as possible. I can try to employ as many people as possible. I can be as transparent and communicative to my employees and to the industry as possible. That's all we're trying to do. Like one of the things that a lot of people in the company keep asking me is like, you know, Grant was asking me yesterday, like, when's Alinea going to reopen? I don't know. I've only got a four week crystal ball. And in the next four weeks, we're not going to open. So for the next four weeks, we're doing carry out at Alinea. Well, when do you think after that? Don't know. Could be August 1st. Could be August 1st, 2021. And he's like, oh, like, that's very unsatisfying. And I'm like, yeah, that's, it's unsatisfying. But like, you, you see, the, you see the world as it is, you know, and right now we can see the world as it is for four weeks. And even then you can't always see it because two weeks ago, we did not know that the largest race riots in the history of our country would be taking place and that we would shut once again for good reasons this time, you know, out of respect for what's going on. So, you know, you have to wake up every day and see the world as it is. That's it. And then and then react. Do you see any other innovations happening in the food retail space because of this? I think one of the things that restaurants realized is that 
If you're a casual restaurant and you want to sell an extra $400 of hamburgers and wings out the back door and put it on a scooter and then get 30% of that lopped off and you get an extra 280 bucks a night, great. You know, that's an extra 1000 bucks a week, $52,000 a year. Free money, according to the third-party delivery apps. And many restaurants just went, yeah, okay, owners just signed up for it, didn't think about it, didn't think about the cost, didn't think about the money. And then the higher-end restaurants, the Roysters of the world and whatnot, you know, $40, $50 check average, went, yeah, that doesn't really work for our food. We're not going to do it. We don't need it. We're not going to do it. Now what's happened is we realize that customers like the ability to bring home higher-quality carryout and do a little bit of work, just enough to like reheat it. Having that in one place with the ability to pace the kitchen is going to stick around. I have told our restaurant group that I anticipate that as long as there's demand, we will do elevated carryout forever. Like this is now a permanent fixture in what we do. I think that small deposits is going to become a permanent fixture. I've been saying this for 10 years. When demand on a Friday or Saturday night is really high and you call a restaurant and you say, hey, can I get four people at eight o'clock? And they say, sure, come on in. They know full damn well that they're not going to see you till nine o'clock. But they also know that if they said no, you would call the restaurant down the street and they'd lie to you. So then you stand at the bar for 45 minutes and then you get a seat and then you start your process. Well, the reason they do that is because they overbook by 15%, because if you have a free reservation, they know 15% of the people aren't going to show up. And so they're playing this odds game. If you take a 5 or $10 deposit for someone, that no-show rate goes under 3%. It's like human psychology. It's not whether you can afford to lose the $10 a person or not. It's just that you're far more likely to call and say, I'm not coming, if you have $40 on the line. It's not a big deposit. It's not a big deal. Every other form of entertainment does this. Every other form of entertainment. Isn't that why talk, you started Talk? To treat restaurant reservations? Yeah, yeah. And, and so like when the first year we operated Next, 100% of our seats were filled. Not tables, seats. Paid in advance. Now we, we, we then for Aviary started doing small deposits. So the ability to do ordinary free reservations when demand is low and supply is high. Tuesday night, you don't pay anything to go into to Aviary or Oyster. Because why? Well, we can serve 350 people a night. Only 200 people are going to show up. Don't worry about the no-shows that night. On a Saturday night when we've got 500 people that want to book, I can afford to take 300 deposits and then treat you better when you get in. And it's just that simple. And what we're seeing now is that that's something that I've been preaching for years. Restaurant owners are afraid of it. And they say, well, tickets can work in New York, but they can't work in Omaha or, or, or Kansas City or whatever or they're not going to work in North Carolina. I hear that over and over again. I hear people in London going, well, that works in America, but not in the UK. And what's actually happened is that every single place we've ever done it, because we built out a very simple UX on mobile, people can click one button and just like you're, you're paying for your, your Lyft or Uber, you make it super easy for them and they show up and it's a better experience. And so they love it. And that's going to happen. That's going to for sure happen now because now at 25 to 50% capacity, you can't afford any no-shows. Right. It's forcing an issue which was going to happen no matter what. Nick went on to discuss another opportunity he sees for restaurants, a way to make them stand out when we're back to full capacity, or even before. Differentiated experiences. I think restaurants are going to start differentiating the experiences within the restaurant. Most restaurants have a bar, they have a main dining room, they might have that cool table near the pizza oven that everyone wants to sit at. They've got a patio. Well, for a long time, they used to book that all the same. And if you got lucky, you'd get the cool table. Or if you were a regular, you'd get that table. Differentiating those experiences and booking them appropriately is something that people want. I think you'll see lines going away. There's a burger restaurant in Chicago that everybody loves. I don't ever go there because there's a two-hour line. I ain't got two hours in my life to stand in line for any burger anywhere in the world, no matter how good it is. I just can't do it. And I'm old now and cranky and get off my lawn. So that seems foolish just as a matter of efficiency for them. Like, what if I could pre-order my burger and they said, okay, come at eight and you can sit down and we'll have it ready for you. They can move twice as many people through without the bad hospitality of a line. I think lines are bad hospitality. I think being told to wait at the bar is bad hospitality. I think you're going to see both those things go away out of necessity right now because of social distancing. And I think that once operators in the public see, well, you know, it was kind of stupid to stand in line for two hours at that. I could have been doing something else with that time. I think you'll see lines starting to go away. It's really about creating a direct connection between restaurants 
and their patrons without the intermediaries. Great. That's beautiful. That's kind of exciting, actually. I take away different things from different pieces of this crisis. And my whole thing is like, well, how do we make it less fragile? That's the whole thing. How do we make our restaurants less fragile? And I've been working on that for years. And like I, I said, on December 31st, 2019, I sent an email to our leadership and I said, that's the best year in the restaurant industry that we'll ever have. Now, I did not obviously know about what was coming. If you couldn't make money in 2019 at a record level in this industry, you do not deserve to have a restaurant or any other business for that matter. I mean, it's full capacity. Everybody's wanting to eat out. The culture is such that people love eating out. You know, if you were making 5% margins then, of course you're going to go out of business in any slip. It doesn't take COVID to take you out of business then. After we cut our recording, Nick and I kept talking, discussing new possibilities in the future of the restaurant. And I wanted to share one more spirited opinion from Nick about how this industry changes from a backup recording that was still running. You know, at the end of the day, like, I wanted to do what would save talk, what would be good for all the customers across the world. And if you save the customers, you save the restaurant, not the other way around. And so it was very, very, very dicey for about a week. I've lost 20 pounds. Like, I I am wasting away nothing sitting up here building this shit out. But I instantly went, no, 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 this is the biggest opportunity of our lives. Like, stop around with lawyers and lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Start building something because that's the way that you change the industry. If you want to change the industry, you don't do it with lawyers. No industry has ever been changed by lawyers. And that, that was the conversation I had with lots of people. I was like, do not change an industry with lawyers, period. I don't care if those lawyers are heads of Congress or they're in the White House or they're suing people on your behalf. You will not change the industry with that. You will change the industry by changing the way that money flows. That's it. That's the way the world's moved for 3,000 years. Couldn't have said it better, Nick. Let's stop complaining, let's be smart, and get on with it. Break that sod and make a garden. Look for the new opportunities that the pandemic has opened up for us, such as really high-end takeout, maybe with us forever if Nick is right. In a follow-up email a week and a half after we spoke, Nick wrote, Carryout has declined by 40% as patios in Chicago have begun to reopen. So Alinea is doing 500 to 700 meals per day on weekdays. The Royster patio opened, sold out for weeks instantly. Not sure if that is good or not, but the economics are not sustainable. In other words, what used to be 350 seats between Royster, Next, Aviary, and Fulton is now just 90 seats on the patio. What other changes will we see? I don't know. Ultimately, the pandemic forces us to acknowledge that it has a critical food component we can learn from. No surprise, as food connects us to everything. But as Dan mentioned, and I want to reiterate, it's become clear that the non-elderly people who are most vulnerable to COVID-19 are people who have underlying conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, vascular obstruction, obesity, the many, many diet-related illnesses plaguing us. Simply put, a bad diet makes us vulnerable to all coronaviruses. So when we're through this, it will be a time to take stock of the food production in this country and to recognize the all-importance of food in our lives. I want to conclude our Restaurants During Lockdown series with words from the author George Orwell, who wrote, I think it could plausibly be argued that changes of diet are more important than changes of dynasty or even of religion. The Great War, for instance, could never have happened if tin food had not been invented. And the history of the past 400 years in England would have been immensely different if it had not been for the introduction of root crops and various other vegetables at the end of the Middle Ages. And a little later, the introduction of non-alcoholic drinks, tea, coffee, cocoa, and also of distilled liquors to which the beer-drinking English were not accustomed. Yet it is curious how seldom the all-importance of food is recognized. You see statues everywhere to politicians, poets, bishops, but none to cooks or bacon curers or market gardeners. Thank you, George Orwell. So here's to the cooks, to the farmers, fishers, foragers, and the gardeners. This episode of From Scratch was engineered by Dan Barber and Nick Kakonis. Thanks for that, guys. From Scratch is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dressler. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. 
From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.